We are speaking with Sune Sorensen. He is the founder of Librarium Associates, which is a global research facility focused on big macroeconomic and geopolitical trends serving institutional and private investors. We'll be talking about current geopolitical and macro trends. Thanks for coming on the Geopolitics and Empire podcast, Mr. Sorensen. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to speak with you today and looking forward to the conversation. Now, before we discuss some of these trends, I'd like you to tell us about Librarium and the work that you do, because I only recently discovered it, but apparently you've been around for a couple of years. So can you tell us a bit more? Absolutely. I mean, the, the Librarium format really sprung out of uh, a number of different uh, projects I was doing in the investment world. And it's kind of been the housing of my research, uh, macro research, mainly uh, work that I've done. And in the last five, six years, I want to say, we kind of expanded uh, more into to doing uh, some regular publications, um, some kind of kept in-house and others we shared more broadly. Um, and basically, our approach is one of focusing on geopolitical trends, macroeconomics, um, really is kind of a top-down approach. Um, but instead of maybe focusing so much on data flows, which you know everyone knows can be uh, sometimes misleading, I kind of like to take a more historic uh, approach, lessons of history, uh, look at uh, more constant features like geography, look at things like demographic, which is more slow moving uh, trends, um, and then kind of look for how these mega trends that are kind of going around the world, let's say in technology, for example, perhaps changes some of the dynamics in those spaces. I wanted to read a quote. So you sent me the publication and you, you quote Nap yeah. the Napoleon uh, that says the power of all nations are inherent in their geography. Uh, and that's funny because, you know, when I started the Instagram account for Geopolitics and Empire, uh, I decided to use it to, to make, you know, use nice quotes and, and graphics. And that was the first quote that I used for <laughs> the Instagram account. And then as well, you, you write that it has been our experience that real learning resides at the intersection of differing informed opinions expressed respectfully between learners. And this is funny because, again, this is also part of my philosophy, what I do with the podcast. And it, it's difficult to do that today because, you know, when I, I speak to people from the left and then I'm called a communist, I speak to people, <laughs> experts from the right, and then I'm called a right-wing extremist. Uh, then I speak to people that don't fit a certain mold. Uh, and then, you know, I, I'm told that I interview fringe uh, nut jobs. And so it's really... really, really <laughs> uh, yeah, people like to put labels on things. I think that's an unfortunate uh, way of doing things, uh, as you say. You know, I think I think that's also in our quote section. But again, for my life of traveling around, I think you you know the world is no difficult different than any other object in the sense that you can look at it from different areas and you will benefit from that. And obviously, you can do that through reading. You can do that through conversations. And I don't think putting labels on things is necessarily very helpful for that. And so you, you just recently discussed a little bit about how you analyze these trends and, and can you tell us just a, a little bit more? I mean, what's, yeah. what makes you a little bit different? And because a lot of the traditional publications, you know, what are some of the things you think that they get wrong? And then what are some better ways of, of analyzing the world? Yeah, I don't really want to point fingers at anyone, but I do think that, you know, I come from the financial industry. It's an industry that obviously has some science envy and where mathematics perhaps is uh, overused, I think, because people see numbers and they think mathematics, they think certainty. And I think when you look at human complex systems, there is no such thing as certainty. And I think, um, you know, you have to be a bit more humble in that sense. And maybe you have to look a bit broader. And I think there's something you can be learning from watching everyday life. There's something you can learn going all micro in and looking at business. There's there's things you can learn from looking at human psychology. There's things you can learn, I think, very much from history. Um, and I think, again, once you sat and you look at all that, you kind of realize how little you really know is one of those things. Um, and then I started saying, okay, let me build this up. I'm a generally a curious person. I have a, always had a an interest in history, geography. Uh, I love reading. Um, so those are kind of some of my key tenets. And you kind of play a little bit to your strengths. I think you have to, to kind of get a framework together. Um, and I have a basic curiosity. So I thought, okay, let's, you know, I was doing a lot of reading, a lot of sort of synthesizing that reading through thinking about what I read, trying to kind of ask questions about it and maybe, you know, rethinking it. And then I found writing to be very useful because when you, let's say you're reading thousands of pages, you're taking in a lot of information, but what are you really doing with it? Um, and I think the exercise of writing uh, helps kind of focus the mind and, and, and then obviously sharing that writing and getting feedback and maybe having some conversation where you spend more time listening than talking uh, can be useful. So that's kind of like my, my raw approach, which I think maybe is not unique. I think it's quite straightforward. But um, I think maybe 
what I then started, the more you do this, the more you start searching to become more efficient with your work. And, you know, that could go into the mundane of how you take notes, how you store your information, where you source your information. Uh, and obviously, ideally, over time, you get better at these things. But I started asking a lot of questions about, you know, doing analysis what is what are what are some tools and again coming from a financial background you know obviously it's you know people talk a lot about analysis there and there's obviously a whole host of different uh, almost kind of sects within that or silos if you want and you know i always found that there's obviously a lot to be taken from it and uh, my initial introduction was through kind of macro investing so obviously you have some some great heroes and a lot of thinking a lot of things you can absorb there but i kind of said you know i think there's a bit too much fluff here perhaps and one of the things that i was drawn to was intelligence analysis uh, as in what you would normally ascribe to uh, things like how the CIA sit and, and analyze the world or a similar outfit. And what I mean by this is really it's more stripped down normally. You're looking at something that's much more flexible. You're trying to build some actual practical models often without the need of all the the kind of associated uh, vocabularies that you may have in academia or that you have in finance for sure. Um, and you're trying to find these methods. So I started reading into this space and there's some, I mean, again, we can share some links perhaps with your listeners, but there's some really good work done in that space that I found useful. Um, and there's, I mean, there's a gentleman called Hoyer who's kind of, uh, for me, a great inspiration who kind of did a book on, on the space um, and gives a lot of food for thought. There's some more practical stuff like the, um, the CIA's Tradecraft Primer uh, on Structured Analytical Techniques, uh, where they use things like uh, something I use a lot, which is like the devil's advocate uh, or devil's advocacy, which is basically you, t you challenge a single strongly held view uh, or consensus by building the best possible case for an alternative explanation. Uh, you can do things like blue-red teams, which is something I do with some of the institutional clients where you build two opposite cases uh, on key tenets uh, of your thesis. Um, and again, it's really about asking what if we took the different view on things you know and i think sometimes people as you described a little bit in your introduction people get very set in how they think about things and they start owning a framework of understanding uh, and very rarely once they bought into that and started to take ownership of it it's very difficult to then take a step back and challenge it um, and often when they are challenged by other people it becomes a bit like uh, you know a tribal contest between you know i support this sports team you support that sports team and then <laughs> people just kind of talk past each other um so you know those are some of my approaches into it um again you can go into i think in the most latest reports i use a gentleman called magolis who has done some really interesting frameworks on trigger analysis um and who does some thinking on on instability and fertility of human societies and again there there's some some good frameworks for thinking so that's kind of you know i kind of try and source ideas best ideas from different places and um, but where i found a lot of useful stuff that i use and i can kind of recommend people uh, maybe look into uh, for trying to make sense of the world around us uh, it's been an intelligence analysis i really love the the way you ex explained all of that and i wish i would get you know talk to more people like this because i mean this is exactly how we should be thinking evaluate evaluating things you know piece by piece and not falling into this label or, or category perhaps you can start us off uh, looking at some trends but i wanted to read again something from your publication uh, around the world in eight pages you write that geopolitical cycles are slow-moving, revolutions happen fast but dawn slowly, and it appears that we have entered the dawn of a new era. International relations are in flux, diverse trends, technological, social, economic are tearing at the fabric of individual societies and the overall framework of the collective global order of the last 70-plus years. So while the outcome is uncertain, it is clear that the status quo cannot hold, and you quote the Italian philosopher Antonio Gramsci, the crisis consists of precisely the fact that the old is dying and the new cannot be born in this interregnum a great variety of morbid symptoms appear so uh you know where would you like to start us off what is most important for you to kind of describe what's happening right now okay i think just to bridge in from our, our last conversation i think obviously we're talking about looking into the future and um, that's obviously a, a, a difficult task and i think again going back to some of my structures of analysis um you can think a bit a little bit uh, this is quite a useful image that is used in other publications as well which is you think about like a future as a cone so you have what is very close and narrow to you the probabilities of different outcomes as we said the geopolitics move pretty slowly so there's not so many paths but as we project further and further out the cone expands and the 
probable uh, becomes a wider range of options. And obviously here, what I like to do, I used to think, you know, when I, you know, when I started to explain, you know, my approach to work, I used to like to say, okay, it's kind of like a never ending puzzle. And the more I thought about that, I thought perhaps that's not the best way to, to describe it because when you have a puzzle, you normally start with an image so you already have an idea what you want the puzzle to look like because it's on the box. Um, then you go and try and find the pieces to match that image. And I don't think it's the right way to do it. I think obviously you got cognitive biases and it's often where you come with a preset idea of what you're trying to see in the world, whatever specific nation or country or system you're looking at. So I prefer now you cannot get rid of the cognitive biases. But what I try and do as a way to manage this is think of it more as you have multiple puzzles in front of you. All the pieces are kind of uniform in, in, in their shapes and coloring. Um, and you're trying to basically fit these puzzles out. And obviously one puzzle may be a puzzle that leads to, let's say, um, you know, China rising, taking over. It could be a puzzle that says, you know, U.S. reinvents itself and runs for another hundred years. And you may have another puzzle that is you know elegant decline of the u.s empire uh, and you're then looking for pieces when you sit and do your day-to-day -day analysis and, and looking at the different inputs and you can then see which puzzle is filling up it's kind of putting a framework to it but also understanding that the framework can be a wider range of outcomes and there's no real you know way of knowing there's no facts about the future so uh, so that maybe is a long way to lead into then saying okay let's look at where we sit right now and, and as you took it from my report it's obviously pretty clear that what has been for the last 70 years, um, which by all means uh, has been a very productive part of human history, um, what's have been achieved economically. I think if you look at things like global uh, poverty numbers, if you look at, you know, all the key factors of kind of human endeavor, um, innovation has been at a very high level. So we achieved a lot, but there's obviously been some issues around the place and we are starting to see some fragmentation of the order that kind of underpinned it all. Um, some of that is to do with obviously the U.S. having had um, a very dominant and, and powerful position in this whole drive and perhaps leveling out to a certain degree. And then you've had a national, uh, natural kind of um, re-emergence of Asia and, and China at the center of that. Um, and then you kind of have Europe sitting in the middle, um, who has perhaps been uh, more and more in a retrenched position. Then you had this kind of European experiment of the European Union, which has been, you know, 40 years in whatever in, in, in its evolution so far, um, with ups and downs and two steps forwards and one backwards. Um, and you have some, you know, parts like, let's say, Brazil in South America. You have had Africa going through quite a transformation as well, which is maybe not recognized as much. So you have all these different moving pieces. Um, um, within this larger framework. And I think it's pretty clear that what has been is not what we're leading into going forward. So then you can take each of those different regions and you can kind of sit and look at, um, you know, what is essentially likely paths forward. Um, and I think, um, you know, in the report, we start with North America because I like to, I mean, obviously the U.S. is the dominant nation in, in North America. But you again, looking at geography, if you look at this perfect piece of real estate that is the North American uh, landmass, you have this beautiful space which has, you know, access to two big oceans, Europe on one side, uh, Asia on the other, opening up for trade. You have this internal um, great farming center. You have rivers that flow the right ways. You have, you know, Canada, which is pretty much, you know, most of the population live like the U.S. in cultural ways right next to the border. Uh, you have Mexico uh, to the south, which, again, economically has been integrated a lot into into that framework. And, and really, again, if you look at um, natural borders, the border doesn't really come from a security perspective, certainly until you kind of hit into the Colombian jungle. So, uh, you know, you have this whole reality. And I think if you look at that space, it obviously has all the, uh, the ingredients for continued dominance, if you want, in global affairs. And, you know, they've had 70 years of building a very diverse economy some of the greatest companies in the world uh, obviously militarily they're, they're one nation or one entity that can really project power all around the world um, uh, in, in a kind of sustained uh, so we say strong format um, so I think that's where we perhaps start and then you can start saying okay what are some of the weaknesses to this and one of the reports uh, in the Around the World series, I did I did the devil's advocacy uh, on the United States as what we call the cleanest shirt in the hamper, if you like, and try to challenge some of these things because, again, you know, obviously, if you're trying to look at change or trying to understand whether change is likely, 
uh, sometimes it's best to take what is conceived as uh, consensus and, and try and challenge it. So when you look at the U.S., you obviously we just talked about the geography. And again, all these things are true and they don't obviously change much. Um, but if you wanted to take the counter case of that, for example, you can say, OK, well, we are living in a more and more integrated world. All these great U.S. companies are part of a global economy um, with a digital reality or digital framework being overlaid on the globe. Um, you know, the world has become much closer to each other. You have much more connectivity between individuals, between companies, businesses, and obviously nation states. Um, and, you know, you, those moats of those two oceans on each side, they have become a lot smaller in the sense that you have much more uh, ability to influence across the digital uh, atmosphere. And on top of that, obviously, with transportation becoming much more uh, useful. So you can challenge the geographic thing and saying, OK, well, we can actually reach into the United States. It's, you know, if you look at cyber conflict, if you look at information warfare, if you look at terrorism, all of these are ways that, you know, maybe 100 years ago or 50 years ago, the U.S. did really face these challenges with. You can say this might be a challenge to the idea that geography you know the u.s stands supreme you can look at demographics which is an area which again the u.s is compared to europe compared to japan has much better to in the traditional thinking of demographics that you want to have a young uh, expanding uh, population um you know they've been considered to be in an advantageous uh, situation uh, you can look at that and say okay well you know, it's not maybe just about numbers when we have a world which has become more digital, more automated. Do you really want a lot of young people with maybe not the highest level of education? Um, or do you want maybe a, a slower growing uh, population that is highly educated, that is healthy? Um, and again, Japan might be an example, which is also something I've done one of the devil's advocacy exercises on in the past report, uh, which is where we challenge the demographic aspect of it and say, well, maybe Japan is actually well positioned as opposed to being in structural decline, as many people think, if you look at demographics in, in the light of automation, in the light of uh, digital reality. Um, I think, again, there you can challenge whether the U.S. demographically is actually in such a great position. Uh, you have a very uh, one of the wealthiest generations of all time in history about to retire um, and they obviously have some uh, some objectives that may not go hand in hand with the younger generation so we have some divides there within the demographics um, you have health issues the u.s spends far more than any other nation on, or developed nation on healthcare. yet the outcomes and whatever way you want to measure it are not as as good as you perhaps would expect for the money spent so there's many things there you could challenge on demographics the military well again if you look at the traditional way of looking at military you know they have you know they're spending more than the eight nine ten nations behind them uh, and they've been doing so for decades so they have a huge advantage there but again you might say the strategy has changed perhaps we're switching more to a hybrid style warfare taking the sort of tenets of guerrilla warfare um, and and using it more in a digital reality which is something we can dig into a little bit further maybe that's alleviating some of the, the perceived strength of the u.s there um, i think if you go at the economy again you can look at the debt factors you can look at the deficits you can look at these aspects i think you look at financial markets you can obviously look at the crisis in 2008 and kicking into the quantitative easing and you can start raising some questions about you know how how much of this is uh, real and how much of this is essentially uh, magical financial tricks being played and um, but again i think you know my my standpoint is that the us is in a unique position of leadership but there are certainly areas where you can raise questions about uh, whether that would be the case going forward yeah, you know, I, I've been reassessing my uh, view uh, of the U.S. Uh, some of my guests, such as Morris uh, Berman, who wrote the trilogy on the on the fall of the U.S. empire, and he's a hardcore declinist. And for a, for a, for a while, I used to have that idea that you know the U.S. is is going to go into this decline, however long it takes to, into a severe decline. But yeah, I'm kind of thinking that. I, I, that might not happen that you know that they will lose some of their positioning but they will remain strong uh and then what i did want to ask you about is well eurasia and this dragon bear so you know i I, ha I have the idea that the u.s will continue to be strong but that they're no longer you know the, the only one on the block that we have this dragon bear rising that will reach reach uh the same status if not a higher status than the eagle, the the U.S. And you recently had a original analysis in your publication provided by Velina Chakarova, who is the head of the Austrian Institute for European Security Policy. And 
she has a really unique unique way of uh, looking at this, and she I like her visual kind of concept of this dragon bear and the eagle, and she's saying the world is becoming bipolar once again, dividing between uh, the U.S. and this dragon bear, and that they're working to create these alternative Bretton Woods type uh, structures, and so. Um, you know, what can you tell us about this Eurasian colossus that's emerging? Well, number one, I, I would suggest that you try and see if Alina can find time to speak to you one day, because he, as you say, she's done great work on it. And, uh, you know, I've been trying to get her into to do something for me for a while in writing and finally she found time. So, um, but I can talk to it a little bit more broadly. And I think um, just to take a step back to the thing you said about the US again, you know, there's this wonderful thing about the imminent versus the inevitable. And I think, you know, it's very easy to sit and say, oh, well, look at the US debt and look at all empires always ends and you know but is it imminent how far away is it are we talking you know 10 years one year 100 years and you know no one really knows so again you got to go back to look at things like the fragility of different systems it's also comparative so as you raise the um, the eurasian uh, the chinese or russian alliance you know it has to be comparable to something you know the you know so i think one thing that is for sure as i just when I mean, we talked about the changes i mean i like this gentleman uh, or one of the the big uh, thinkers of, of real politic if you like uh, lord palmerston of the U, of the english or the british empire um you know he had the saying that nations they have no permanent friends or allies uh, they have only permanent interests and uh, we have no eternal allies and we have no perpetual enemies uh, only our interests are eternal and perpetual and these interests it is our duty to follow so if you look at that i think that's the climate we are into and when you talk about the russian chinese alliance i think you're very much looking at that i think that is they have a shared interest and i think current policy from the u.s administration uh, is perhaps forcing those interests to be even more expanded um you know whether that's through kind of weaponizing the dollar or whether it's through um you know just playing hard nose politics uh, with them where perhaps um, it would be more interesting again I think also with Europe because if you look at Eurasia obviously you got the on one side the Chinese kind of civilization that has been going from there and then you had what is traditionally the Russian sphere of influence across uh, the middle of the whole whole place and then to the west you have obviously this European um, where labor formation that has been in whether it's kind of the Hanseatic League or whether it's now the European Union but you have these different interests and you know you know, you have Makinda, who's obviously talked about this kind of heartland theory, and I think you know the the traditional, shall we say, idea is that you keep Eurasia divided, and then because that would be perhaps the super piece of real estate that could compare to the North American entity. Um, again, it's a much larger and much more contrastful uh, natural environment, and again full of uh, causes for concern uh, if you look at the empire sort of the graveyard of empires in the middle and, and obviously you know china and russia not traditionally uh so we say in, in alliance and obviously europe has always kind of struggled within itself and perhaps pushing towards russia um, in in latter years in my my lifetime at least so you know what we're seeing right now is perhaps more uh, this thing about you know if the u.s is more dominant role as the global policeman, if you want, which was kind of a traditional Washington consensus idea, um, where Europe is now sitting, perhaps asking some questions. Europe is obviously integrated to some degree because, for example, Russia is both European and Asian in nature. There's a lot of natural gas flowing from Russia into Europe. There's a lot of trade coming out of Germany towards uh, Asia, uh, Russia. So there's an interlink already there. But on the security matters, it has always been the US and Europe together. If that's coming up for questioning to a certain degree, um, then obviously that opens up some doors for this Eurasian reality. And as we just talked about, um, you know, China and Russia has come to a lot of agreements. It seems that China is allowed to move economically into uh, Kazakhstan, into these major countries in the middle, um, and obviously into Russia, specifically the Asian part of Russia, where you're seeing development of you know natural gas, oil, uh, directly into China. And obviously also China has a stated interest in becoming more and more involved in the Arctic, which is where Russia obviously again has the real estate, if you like. Um, so there is a lot of um, synergies, if you like, between these two places. And they're kind of being pushed together by external forces, mainly the U.S. targeting them uh, for various reasons. Uh, so, again, you can talk about Eurasia rising or you can talk about Eurasia becoming more fluid. Um, so if you look at from the kind of European side, is, is the question is, if you go 10, 20 down, years down the line, 
will the European Union become some kind of more stable unit uh, that's still linked security-wise to North America? Or will it start to be uh, diverting interest within that that kind of leads to its slow erosion um, and perhaps someone more part of, let's say, Eastern Europe or some key countries in Europe start leaning more towards the Eurasian reality um, and, and engaging with China economically, maybe Russia for energy? Um, do we have a more fluid situation where Europe starts to disappear into a Eurasian reality, whereas for the last 40, 50 years, you know, Western Europe has been kind of a... A hallmark of, of kind of a Western North American Atlantic reality. Um, and again, you then got to look at, you know, things like China. Obviously, a lot is to do with whether they can find their way on this very ambitious course that they've set out um, and whether they really have much choice. And again, there you can look at some, some things around leadership, uh, centralized leadership and the fragility that brings. And even more so in Russia, where you obviously have more rule by man than by law. Um, and that comes with, again, if you look at history, you have these kind of uh, mad, bad emperor uh, dynamics, which, you know, once you have ruled by man, if that man or his leadership groups disappears, then suddenly you have a big vacuum and that normally can lead to chaos. And again, if you look at both uh, China and Russia, it is in the long sweeps of history, places that go through incredible development and then normally some implosion into chaos for a couple of hundred years before it's then put back together and then we have another run at it. Um, so whatever the path leads in that direction, it's hard to deny right now that there is a lot of fundamentally systemic developments in the heartland of Eurasia between China and Russia that is driving maybe towards something more constructive. I think that one of the key questions becomes how Europe ends up playing into this. Um, and again, obviously, whether China and Russia can navigate the different obstacles ahead of them, some internal and some perhaps being put in their way externally. I'd like to get your thoughts on warfare uh, and conflict because, you know, there's talk today of this Thucydides trap where uh, empires, this historical cycle where empires decline uh, and then new empires rise. And, you know, there's a lot of this hyped up talk. Uh, I think some of it's to get cl clickbait, you know, uh, about, you know, World War Three or thermonuclear war, which I, I think is is possible. I mean, if we look at these things realistically, like, you know, I'm here in the former Soviet Union and no, everyone here tells me nobody could have imagined when, when that day came uh, in 1990, 91, when it collapsed, no one imagined that. Or when war broke out in, in my country, Croatia and Yugoslavia, again, like no one, it just happens out of the blue. Same thing with the world wars. So I think it's a possibility, but I don't think in the near term, that's something that we'll be looking at. And, and something that you mentioned was this aspect of cyber warfare, information warfare, a hybrid warfare. To me, this seems like this is going to be where all the action is going to be at. What, what are your thoughts uh, on as we shift into this new order that's being built and the, the old one is being deconstructed? What can you? What are your thoughts on the trends of of warfare and conflict? Yeah, I think you raised some good points there. I think I mean again going back to a little bit the. Uh, the kind of futures cone or the funnel, you know, change is not an event, it is the process. And again, when you're sitting monitoring, you're looking for those pieces of the process to come in place. So when you say, you know, World War Three and, and nuclear war, you know, these things are possible, but very unlikely. And I don't think they're around them. And I think there's also a tendency either for, as you say, clickbait, just like if you go on Twitter for five minutes, okay, is that people like to jump to the conclusion of any uh, theory that they have. So then it's always the extreme. One has to be this or it has to be that most times in, in human systems or human complexities, we end up somewhere in a more nuanced, gray, centric kind of uh, path of development. Um, again, if you want to try and take, um, you know, the different possible outcomes, I think obviously you can look at maybe, um, you know, in regards to the U.S. As, as a leadership, you could look at either reinvention of the U.S., which they have a history of doing. I mean, it's only a couple of hundred years, but they have a history of reinvention um, and perhaps they could build the foundations for another century under the kind of American uh, leadership um, maybe that would go in some combination with china hitting some some uh, trouble um you could have what like the uk to us transition what we call an elegant decline where perhaps we you know in all the different frameworks the us retrenches out of asia slowly militarily uh, maybe the dollar takes a slow 
grind into something different where it still remain very powerful in parts but you know china sh- slowly shifts to buying its commodities in its own currencies being able to do trade in the eurasian landmass and in currencies local to those places and you can take each of these different uh, veins of power and say okay we do a slow retrenchment a bit like what happened to the uk handing over to the us where we you know we go through a 20 30 year period without any sort of really hot conflict um, then you can have a more dramatic scenario where you either have push come to shove uh, Chinese uh, Russian uh, influence hits hitting into the US somewhere you have maybe some mistakes made at local level whether that's in the South China Sea whether that's um, you know in places like Korea or other other parts where we have uh, flashing uh, of, of kind of uh, all these dynamics that the tinder that has been building up suddenly gets lit like if you go back in the 1930s and look at how the start of the first world war for example um, you could have a scenario where the US are, you know collapses from within in the sense that there's major internal issues in the US between divides between generations, divides between the over inequality. Um, the politics is obviously very bipartisan, right? Uh, very partisan right now, I should say. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you could have some kind of deterioration from within that would then lead to a, a big vacuum in the world. Um, so I think these are different possibilities. Um, and one area to look at, where again, if you go back to looking at, at challenging consensus, um, one area I've been spending a lot of time on, both from the investment aspect is technology and, and, and this aspect of, of the leaps in innovation that we see and how uh, technology can be a multiplier. So it has been for the US. They've been out ahead of everyone um, and they kind of given them, you know, a, a runway to, to get well ahead of, of most others, whether it's economically or militarily. But it's also a way to leapfrog. And obviously, there's a lot of focus right now on stolen IP and people catching up. And again, this is quite normal in history between dominant parts of the world where, you know, they, they get ahead from technology or innovation and then other people catch up by, you know, to be fair, stealing or taking and improving upon models from, you know, success stories around the world. Um, so one of the areas I've been looking a lot at is technology. And then again, if you're looking at your politics and you're looking at military, um, you, you kind of start seeing that there's some areas here that if you were the protagonist, if you were sitting in the seat of being a strategist out of, let's say, China or Russia, and you're faced with this dominant, dominant, kinetic, traditional military of the U.S., and you would say, okay, we can try and match them and go out into open sea and then meet them out there. And, you know, most likely we would all be sunk and we would have wasted, uh, we would be getting into this kind of Cold War scenario where we're spending billions and billions of dollars on trying to catch up um, and most likely we would not really be able to win such a confrontation. So unlikely that uh, that they would choose that road. So then what are the other possibilities? So then you look at things like the hybrid warfare, and that's where I've seen a lot of traction. I think it's very interesting when you look at it. Um, so I spend a lot of time reading, for example, a lot of U.S. government uh, documents, internal documents from you know various agencies that are accessing right now uh, their military capabilities in consideration to cyber, for example, or information warfare. And, you know, one of the things that stands out to me uh, is that there's a lot of reactionary language. So that's a lot of we must do, we will, we must move away from, uh, which is interesting considering that uh, this is a force, as we can observe before, that has spent a lot of money, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of money over, you know, decades. Um, and they're looking at these weapon systems now where perhaps uh, in a conventional sense, they are so dominant that they can't really be challenged. But if you start thinking unconventionally about where's the weakness in this is perhaps in the fact that, I mean, even if you look at some of, I mean, there's a number of reports out, but uh, there's a GAO report um, which looks at weapon systems. It's called the DOD just beginning to grapple with scale of vulnerabilities from 2018. Um, and some of the things they highlight, you know, is that when you have all the weapon system functioning by computer, um, you know, for basic operational aspects, uh, then you have a weakness, specifically now that we no one can see that cyber, for example, is more and more of a, an avenue that is being pursued and where we are having more of a leveling of skills, uh, as in that Russia and China is perfectly capable. I mean, the U.S., as far as I can understand, that is still very dominant, certainly in the offensive side of use of cyber. Um, but again, uh, 
you know, it is a leveler. So, you know, it leads you to asking questions about the traditional way of thinking about U.S. military power. Um, and again, there's some of this is natural. You build this huge machine and it moves slowly in terms of change. And the world is changing. The You know, it's been fighting in, in terrorist warfares and in, in the kind of uh, Middle East and in smaller nation states warfare for, you know, the last 40 years. Um, and now we're seeing a changing perhaps of that. So there's a change in that. There's a change to technology. Um, and there's a lot of cost involved. Again, there's this thing when you are a huge uh, entity like the U.S. military and you have very deep pockets, everything you try and do costs a lot more money than maybe it does in other places. And everything you try and do will take a long time before it can really truly be implemented. Um, so if you look at this sort of cyber aspect of it, you know, it raises basic questions. You know, if if with cyber, you can basically circumvent this um, this traditional sense of, of military strength by basically saying, okay, well, you know, you have this hundred million dollar fighter plane, but how much is it really worth if an adversary can sit undetected far away and simply just switch off the oxygen? Or if you have a fifteen billion dollar aircraft carrier, um, but with use of let's say uh, electric warfare or cyber warfare, you can make it so it can't really communicate with its aircraft or it doesn't really know where it is because it's relying on sat nav, which can be interfered with um you know what about smart kinetic weapons you know 100 million dollar rockets if you're using you know left of target tools which is kind of a way to again interfere with uh the data input and the communications of these smart weapons for example then suddenly you have this great level up um, effect and then you have to ask questions about what is preconceived uh, in terms of military strength for example yeah i think these are timeless uh principles right reminds me a bit of david and goliath uh as well uh i think michael pillsbury wrote the book the hundred year marathon where he talks about how the chinese are now uh, focusing uh on this finding the weakest points through unconventional warfare and yeah instead of spending it doesn't make sense to, to spend that money to match the u.s i wanted to talk uh, a bit switch now gears to the macro um, economy and you're also an advisory board member of the BFI Capital Group, uh, and you know in the in the around the world in eight pages that you sent me, you ha had someone writing about the U.S. economy again, the Federal Reserve, and basically them saying that the Fed isn't as all powerful as as many people think, and that the U.S. still has room to kick the can uh, down the road, so that I guess in the near term again that we're okay. Uh, and so what, what are your thoughts on the global macroeconomic situation and what troubled waters lie ahead? Well, I mean, I think, again, if you take a step back to, let's say, 2008, 10 years ago, it was a decade ago, where we see this, this financial world. Um, I think one of the, some of the key takeaways from it is perhaps that human economic system is a human system, and we seem to be able to change the goalposts quite a lot and the rules around it uh, when it suits us, or suits certainly a majority of either the people who control it. Um, and generally, most people in the population are quite happy to follow along if it means they're not being dropped off into some chaotic new uh, reality. Um, so what does that mean? It means that, you know, we can, as you say, extend things, um, we can change the rules of things. Um, and, you know, uh, I don't really see, I think one, when we talked about all these different geopolitical aspects, I think one of the things that has obviously been relatively lacking, if you look at the price levels or the indices, uh, pretty much wherever you want to look, but specifically US, um, they're very advanced. And if you just talked about uh, all these different uh, issues geopolitically and all this change, it doesn't really seem to be reflecting into financial markets at this stage. Um, so I think economically, uh, you can very clearly see that what is underway right now, which is perhaps a reversal to some degree of globalization, um, you know, going from a global economy, outsized uh, manufacturing, uh, global companies reaching further and further afield for markets. Um, you know, perhaps we are going into a different direction where it's more regional, uh, where there is a lot to be redrawn in terms of how things work in terms of agreements. Um, and this will take time. Um, so economically, you can see Asia slowing down. You can watch whatever you want. You can, I would suggest, get on, get beyond the GDP figures and just start looking at actual manufacturing, uh, electrical inputs, uh, you know, freight, uh, or freight of, of either seaborne or, or by air. Uh, you can look at all these different levels and you can see that the global economy is slowing down uh, to a degree, um, whether that continues to escalate 
time will tell. Um, but, you know, again, this is not really priced into most equity markets either. So you have this split between the two. And I think there's one thing that, you know, we talk a lot about in the, in the financial space is this fact that, you know, global financial markets have been sort of drifting around this QE days for a while. Uh, there's been a lot of innovation, a lot of good things going on as well. Um, but they're completely been separated from all these major changes in, in the geopolitical space. And perhaps what we do at some stage is kind of geopolitics coming in and smacking uh, this financial uh, drift right in the mouth and saying, okay, here's some realities. Now we have to try and price these factors in. I mean, again, you know, it's quite interesting. One of the things that got me into to looking at the cyber security sector initially, for example, was that, you know, I started looking at this digital aspect of the world and I was interested in kind of a picture and shovel place on the fact that the world is getting more and more digital, more and more of our data is digital, more and more of our business um, projects are in digital format. Obviously, financial markets are digital. Um, so I started thinking about this and I started asking questions about this whole concept of, of the fact that we moved in this direction. So I came across this um, this quote, which uh, is an agency that does a lot of work on, on the space. And they basically highlighted that in 2015, 84% of the value of an S&P 500 company was an intangible assets, whereas in 1975, you know, 16% or 15% was an intangible asset, meaning that most of the valuations of these giant global companies was in fact derived from intangible assets, IP, data, proprietary systems, and what have you. Most of this, again, is in digital format, as has been well documented. Some of this IP gets stolen, again, via cyber, for example. But I don't really think that gets factored in. So my next question was then, how is all this protected if you have all these huge companies with all this value at risk, really, uh, sitting in a digital kind of uh, castle in the clouds, if you like, or in the cloud computing? Um, how is this really protected? And again, I did some deep dives with some specialists in the area. And again, the answers that came up were not particularly reassuring. Um, so again, if you apply that across that scenario, you mix that in with the geopolitical reality, you're looking at this retrench of globalization, which again, if you look at any change, it's always worth looking at who's the biggest beneficiary of what went before. And again, you can look at individual nations like, let's say, South Korea or Germany, who was exporting. You can look at big US and European companies who were outsourcing manufacturing trading globally and pretty much kind of, you know, you may say that a European or German company or they're an American company, but they're really global companies and they have uh, shareholders they respond to more than any given nation state. So if we have this major change, they are probably the biggest losers in this. And again, this is not reflected in share prices. Um, and you have all these, uh, let's say, risk building up in the system that are not just economic, but actually goes into the geopolitical arena. Um, so again, if we go back to just look at the cybersecurity aspect, one of the things about cyber warfare is that it's asymmetric in nature. If you switch off the electricity grid in the eastern seaboard of the United States of America, you have a global crisis on your hand, you have financial markets down, you have all out panic. If you then try and go back and hit Moscow and switch their light off, it's just a bad day in Moscow. Okay, It's not a huge issue. It's a regional, local issue. So you have this kind of, uh, you can punch much, he much heavier the other way. And again, when you look at things like security measures, uh, you're relying on private individual businesses, whether they are banks or financial companies or whether they're infrastructure uh, providers to do their own security. It's not necessarily the U.S. government who has amazing tools at their disposal, but they're not sitting protecting Citibank's uh, security. Um, or their natural grid uh, security to a certain degree. So you have this asymmetric issue. And again, this is not priced in, in any way or form. So when you're looking at, uh, at the macro issues, I think you could go beyond just sitting, figuring out, well, you know, is this market here, but we have more QE, will the Federal Reserve be able to, to boost the market higher? Or, you know, can we get more stimulus? Can government come together and, and, and find infrastructure plans? You know, all these things, they will, they will happen or they will not happen. But I think there's a lot larger uh, dynamics at play that is worth thinking about. Recently, I interviewed uh, famed investor Jim Rogers, who had started the Quantum Fund with uh, George Soros some decades ago. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of the, the interview turned out to be a bit of a clickbait, but that wasn't my intention. Um, and I got a lot of a lot of uh, listens. But, you know, I, I, I enjoy Jim Rogers. I've read his books. Um, but, you know, he, he said that again, he said something that that in one, he he gave a time frame that in one or two years you know 
the system will collapse and and you know he makes the case that all the fundamentals are there that things are fundamentally wrong but they keep kicking the can down the road and nobody knows when things are come to a head um but he's been saying this you know, he said the coming financial collapse will be the worst in his lifetime but he's been saying a lot of commentators have been uh comments on the, on the interview said that he's been saying this for like 10 years, 10, 20, you know, years. And so nothing's happened. So, I mean, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, is there going to be some collapse or will things just kind of, are, things are more nuanced, as you say, things will just, we will, there's more res- resilience and adaptability built into the system. I think so. I mean, I, I like Tim Rogers as well, listening to him. And obviously he's the guy who knows how to get some uh, self-promotion out there. And, uh, you know, I don't knock that at all. But, uh, you know, I always, you know, when you have people expressing certainty about complex issues, it's always a bit of an alarm for me. Okay. And obviously I understand that the framework of modern media is all about, here's my take and here's an opposing take and let's have an argument about it. And that goes into social media. But I always, when I see, you know, I come from financial background, I've seen plenty of sales pitches. I mean, someone can have absolute certainty in something that you cannot be certain about that's always a time to leave the room okay and again i find that that translates very well into the matters of geopolitics or more complex human systems so not to knock uh, mr rogers i find it very hard to understand how you can put a time period on something that you can't really fully understand uh, all the different knock you know there's so many different moving parts of that so how can you put a timeline on it like that uh, again i agree that there's certainly a lot a lot of um of a fire that can be caught or you know uh, overlay of risk around the world in all these different frameworks some of it we touched upon today um but i also think that there is a counter to that and one is that you know most days the world doesn't end okay number one so that's your base rule number two uh, humans have a way of finding a way through these things uh, we have done terrible terrible things i mean i'm from europe so europe is a place of obviously magnificent achievements but also one of incredible uh, warfare and, and devastation um, and you know we find our way through these things and i think again you're looking forward out there most people's in you know most people beyond you know small geopolitical circles or you know guys hanging out on twitter or people in the financial world most people they just they just want to get up be with their family go out and start their business work in their business going to work in their job and that's kind of what they're about okay they want to have a better day tomorrow than they had today and they're quite happy to sign on for anything that kind of prolongs that okay so again there is a feeling where People who may have put a bet on 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 uh, sort of a chaos tomorrow, whether you know it's in the gold space or whether it's in in other parts of it, they they kind of they want almost to see this chaos, and they're starting to try and look for reasons why this chaos is just about to happen. And again, I would say that while those many of those reasons are true, it's also true that the majority of people at, at all levels. Uh, don't want to see that chaos and that is very powerful i think 2008 2009 is an example of that whereas we would all sit there and you know i sat there and watched and thought wow the whole thing is going to collapse you know u.s banks are being closed down every friday i was in cape town at the time and i would be sitting there on saturday morning i would get up and i would be looking at the fidic documents coming out saying you know this bank has been taken over and this bank is now closed and you thought wow every every weekend there's another 20 30 you know regional banks being closed and rolled up and you know really people were thinking that you thought wall street you know they're to blame and you know they're all going to go to prison and that was all this kind of drive but reality was that you know we had a couple of years we had a lot of uh, liquidity pumped into the system and certainly not sustainable if you're looking at it in, in traditional mathematical terms uh, but you know We've had 10 years of pretty much growth after on the back of that. Um, so again, whether that can be sustained, probably not. There will be issues around in regional areas. Um, but again, if you're looking at the long threat or the kind of the long arcs of history, you know, I think we'll probably be okay. I think we will have changes. I think there'll be changes globally. I think you will have um, a more regional reality perhaps um, than you've had before. I think globalization will take a stop and have a look at it. There's some internal issues to be addressed. Again, not much for politics besides just observing it. But, you know, people talk about all this populism and all these problems and about how it's China's fault or it's Europe's fault or it's Germany's fault or it's Greece's fault or Italy. You know, the problems are normally more localized in in the issue. If you look at uh, the last 70 years to go back where we kind of started, I think we've gone from a global economy of like one or two trillion dollars to one of around 70. So people will talk about inflation and what have you, but there's no real denying that the pie has gotten a lot bigger 
Um, we can talk about how we're going to become more productive, whether that's in agriculture, whether that's in, in various levels of business. So the pie has become more tasty, if you like. The pie has maybe not been split very equally and inequality is an issue. But again, these are normally regional, national issues more than they are one where you, you point fingers at, at strangers as the first way. You might have to look in the mirror in different parts of the world and say what changes can we actually make to make it more equitable while not losing this drive for constant pursuit of a better way to do things uh, and rewarding the people who do find those solutions. So it's a complex issue, but you know <laughs> that is basically human progress. I think you, you wound down the, the conversation well, and that's a great place to, to leave it. And you leave uh, you leave us with optimism, which is good. I feel <laughs> I feel optimistic. I have four young kids, so obviously, you know, there's the saying that obviously, from what we do, you want to be, you know, you don't get really paid to be a pessimist or an optimist. You get paid to be a realist, and obviously, sometimes that can be a pretty dark place to sit and look at things. But I have my three wonderful kids, and every day you go out and you look at them, and you think, obviously, there must be a better way forward. And you know, I speak to many people. And uh, if you just run by the headlines, it can be a very negative world. But once I get out traveling and I meet people uh, in all walks of life, they're normally in the same kind of situation as me. They all kind of want to to make improvements. They want changes where there's where there's real um, problems. But you know, I think the, the you know, majority of people of humanity they're trying to push forward in a more positive way, uh, and that's something to to carry with you. It doesn't mean there can't be issues. It doesn't mean there can't be accidents, um, and that's what we got to watch for. Um, I think we're heading into times of change, and I think to kind of leave it all off, you, you can take Mr. Hoffer, Eric Hoffer's quote, that in times of change, they learn us, they inherit the world, while they learned, they find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with a, a world that no longer exists. So, you know, I encourage people to stay curious and keep learning, um, and I think we need to think maybe a bit bigger instead of getting very focused on on blaming others for issues that maybe we can be part of a solution for. All right. And finally, can you tell us about your websites uh, and services and how people can get the, around the world and how listeners um, can, can find you? Yeah, so um, I work mainly with accredited investors, so that has to be clear in terms of advisory side of the business. But um, on the back of that, I've always wanted to have some of my research public because I like the feedback. I like to hear from people from different parts of the world and different walks of life. So we do issue the Around the World, which is a quarterly publication um, focused on geopolitics, macroeconomics, basically what we talked about today. Um, which is publicly available. People can go onto our website under the research part and request it. Um, they can contact me on Twitter, where I'm pretty active, uh, Librarium Views. Um, and we also have a, a report series called Eight Pages About, which is more uh, thematic, focusing on areas that I find interesting, which could be, let's say, uh, uh, investing in innovation. It can be about agriculture. We've done the report not so long ago. Uh, so it's more investment orientated and more specific and irregular in format. But those two reports are, are publicly available to, to all. And as I said, I like conversation, so people should feel free to reach out. I like feedback. I would recommend people check it out because you really have a different view from the from the usual stuff. Uh, I think people will uh, enjoy that. So that's at librariuminsights.com and your Twitter is li at librariumviews. So thanks again for the interview. It's been great. Hope to speak to you again in the future and all the best with everything. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.